take our Bibles and turn back to the book of Joel. The book of Joel in your Bible, one of the minor prophets towards the end of the, of the uh, Old Testament. The book of Joel in your Bibles this evening. Well, our cicada friends came and went uh, this uh, past spring. We didn't get uh, a whole lot of fanfare right here in South Riding, but everywhere around us seemed to, uh, to enjoy Brood X, the 17-year cicadas. They were last seen here in 2004, and uh, then they made their uh, return debut uh, this year. They showed up in, the, in uh, Washington, D.C., and in 15 states around us. And they were in Delaware, Georgia, Illinois, Indiana, uh, Kentucky, Maryland, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, and West Virginia. The Brudex, 17-year locusts. We will not see them again for 17 years. Add that to your current age, and you'll find out how old you'll be when you meet another Brood X, 17 years cicada. You know about the only thing they left behind here, the only thing they brought here was a lot of noise. And those who were around them, the constant drone of the noise, uh, that'll be the one thing that they're remembered for. Uh, but locusts are another matter. Locusts uh, do far more than just make a lot of noise. Just asked Joel, the Old Testament preacher that dealt with locusts in his lifetime. I don't know if you've noticed, but on your little worksheet, the, uh, there are 12 minor prophets across the uh, masthead that uh, Jonathan Simpson discovered. And uh, each of those little images portray something that relates to that individual prophet. And uh, we looked at Obadiah last time. This time we're looking at, Lo- at Joel. And you'll notice that Joel's got his hands in the air. And he's kind of got a bunch of little insects all around his head. And those are locusts. Joel is known for locusts. That is his claim to fame as an Old Testament preacher. He uh, recognized the locusts of his day as a devastating judgment of God. Joel unashamedly related the physical world that he saw to the spiritual world that he couldn't see. The message is universal. And while tied to a specific event in his world, challenges uh, every generation of preachers to see the hand of God in the natural world around them. That is one thing that I learned from the Old Testament preachers. They saw the hand of God in the natural world in which they lived. They weren't ashamed to announce that something in the natural world was a result of an unseen God dealing with His creation. Now, today, that people think that's a little bit spooky. You know, we've gone beyond that superstition of blaming everything on some unseen God. We live in a modern world in which we can tell Forces of nature, and we know why things happen and why things don't happen. It has nothing to do with God. It just has to do with the forces of nature. And we burnt too much oil, and so we caused this and, and all of that. And, and, uh, and we don't, we, we're not superstitious people that blame an unseen God for what we see. 
Well, that sounds reasonable. But if God inspired the recording of his word, then the preachers of the Bible saw God's hand in nature and proclaimed it as the action of God dealing with his creation. And if the Bible is an inspired word written by God, then we have to take that seriously. And that's one of the great values of Bible preachers, to be able to realize that God is at work in our world today. And he works through natural causes. And he does things in our environment. And he has purposes behind what he does. And we, as the Old Testament preachers, ought to learn not to be embarrassed by our unseen God and what he does. Not to shy away from attributing to him what he does. That's an important lesson we learn from the Bible preachers. G. Campbell Morgan said, A terrible locust plague which had devastated the entire country was seen by the prophet as a judgment of God. And this he declared and announced the fact that it indicated a still severer judgment that could only be averted by heart repentance. This outlook is made the basis of a larger message. A day of judgment and destruction issuing in a reign of order and restoration of all things. G. Campbell Morgan noted that the thing that Joel is known for is his dealing with the world in which he lived as the action of God judging his culture, his generation in his culture. And from the basis of that, he looked down the road and he announced that if, if we don't get our hearts right, there's worse coming. And then he looked further down the road and he said, this is like what it's going to be at the very end of time before God restores all things back to the pre-fall condition in a new heavens and a new earth. So Joel linked the present judgment of God in nature, using nature to judge man. He used that as a, as a place to extend from to look out into the future and see future judgments culminating in the tribulation period that will usher in. God's dealing with his world and restoring all things. Now, all of this encourages us to realize there is hope even in judgment. Because as Joel announces the judgment of God in the events of his day, he always held out. Twice in the book of Joel, he held out hope. It doesn't have to be this way. There's a remedy for this. And Joel has two of the most clear and emphatic statements about revival of people's hearts to avert the judgment of God that is catastrophic in their immediate lifetime while they're living. And so Joel comes down to us as a book about locusts, as God's instrument of judgment in an apostate nation, all the while holding out hope that it doesn't have to be this way. Here's the answer that God gives us in times of judgment. And that's the strong message of the book of Joel. You're in Joel, but, but put your finger there or something and turn back to Second Chronicles. You see, when, when God used Solomon to build the temple in Jerusalem... 
Solomon did that and then had a special uh, service of dedication. We read about it in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, in which Solomon has completed the temple and then he prays to God. And this uh, sixth chapter of 2 Chronicles, uh, over and over again, Solomon uh, repeats a, a little uh, mantra, if you please. Uh, if you look in verse number 12, Verse number 12, and he stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the congregation of Israel, spread forth his hands, and he began to speak. Now come down to verse number 21. Verse number 21, you'll notice he said to God, Hearken therefore unto the supplication of thy servants and of thy people Israel, which they shall make toward this place. Hear thou from thy dwelling place, even from heaven, and when thou hearest, forgive. He said, God, when we pray to you from this place, please, would you hear our prayer? And then beginning in verse number 22 and running down through verse number 42, you'll find a mantra. He said, if a man sin, verse 22, if a man sin, verse number 23, then hear thou from heaven. Verse 24, and if thy people Israel, verse 25, then hear thou from the heavens. And all the way down through verse 42, he repeats this mantra, If we sin and we pray to you, will you forgive us? And it's repeated over and over and over again. Come down to verse number 28 of chapter 6. Verse number 28. He says, If the earth, if there be dearth in the land, if there be pestilence, blasting, mildew, locusts, or caterpillars. Notice specifically named is locusts or caterpillars. And so he prays and asks God to hear. Now come over to chapter 7, 2 Chronicles chapter 7. God answers Solomon. And in verse number 12, the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to myself for an house of sacrifice. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land. Notice, God specifically said, if I command locusts to devour the land or send pestilence, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from all the way up in here in heaven, I'll hear your prayer, I'll forgive your sin, heal your land. That's, this is the promise of God in answer to Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple. Now, a hundred years have passed, and Joel is on the scene. A hundred years after Solomon prayed and God answered Solomon's prayer, Joel is on the scene, and guess what happened in Joel's lifetime? The locusts that had been mentioned by God specifically as a judgment a hundred years earlier have now devastated the land of Israel. And so here's Joel, a Bible preacher, preaching to the people about the fact that God has done what he said he would do. God has issued judgment to the people. Now, there's a phrase that's used of judgment in the Bible. It's actually used five times in the book of Joel. It's the phrase, Day of the Lord. It's an important phrase in your Bible, the phrase day of the Lord. Your little worksheet mentions that phrase, day of the Lord. It's the, the phrase speaks of a period of time in which God intervenes in the affairs of man to judge. The day of the Lord is a time of judgment. It's a time where God intervenes in the affairs of 
his creation to bring judgment for their behavior, for what they've done. And five times in the book of Joel, Joel uses this phrase, day of the Lord. Joel was dealing with a time of apostasy in which God was judging and God's instrument of judgment was a locust plague. And Joel is preaching about the judgment of God through the plague of locusts. Now, the, the book of Joel follows a, 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 a rhythmic pattern. Uh, we're going to look at the first part of it tonight. Next time, uh, Lord willing, we'll conclude the book. But there's a rhythmic pattern. He begins by speaking in the past tense. And he says, there has been a locust plague. And he describes it. After he describes the locust plague that they've already endured, he then calls them to repentance. That's the hope and the answer. He then tells them, but if you don't repent, there's going to be another locust plague that's going to follow the locust plague we've just had. And the answer is repentance. And he again deals a second time with the hope that comes on the heels of repentance. And then he says at the end of the book, he says all of this, this past locust plague and imminent potential locust plague, all of this is an amazing picture of not a day of the Lord in Israel or a potential day of the Lord in Israel, but a catastrophic day of the Lord that will impact the entire globe. And will usher in God's restoration, reversing the effect of the fall in the Garden of Eden, and bringing a restoration of all things for Israel and his creation. So that's the flow of the book of Joel. I want you to focus just for a moment on the judgment from God that they were going through at the present time. I call it the judgment from God is now. We have just experienced the judgment of God. It's real, and we're suffering the effects of it right now. And then he will speak in chapter 2 of the judgment from God that could be soon. A second locust plague if we don't repent. So let's look at just a little bit of this uh, in Joel and see how this unfolds in the book of Joel. Uh, Let me find Joel. Now, Joel opens up in chapter 1, speaking of this, uh, this current uh, judgment of God, and, and he starts out uh, noting that it's, it's, it's a story to be told, and it will be told. He said in verse number 2, Hear this, ye old men, and give ear, ye inhabitants of the land. And he asks them a question. How many of you old guys? How many of you old men here? How many of you have ever seen this in your lifetime? Think back through your lifetime. Have you ever experienced anything remotely like what we have just experienced here in Israel? Joel asked them the question, have you ever seen this? Has this been in your days or even in the days of your fathers? Do any of you all have a dad that used to tell you around the table, when I was a little boy, we had a locust plague that did thus and so? Do do any of you older men... Do you remember in your lifetime or in your parents' lifetime, this, what we experienced is, uh, is unheard of in the lifetime of yourself and in the previous generation. This story is going to be a story that you're going to tell your kids. 
He said, verse 3, tell ye your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. I mean, this is a story to be told. One day, you're going to tell your kids, boy, you should have seen what we had when I was your age. And, and, and then you're going to tell your grandkids after that. And, and then your, your kids are going to tell their grandkids, and, and, and then they'll tell another generation. This is a multi-generation, unbelievable judgment from God that's going to be a story that will be told for generations. What is it? Well, verse number four says, that which the palmer worm hath left. Now, notice the past tense. What the palmer worm hath left, hath the locust eaten. What the locust hath left, uh, the, conqueror, the canker worm hath eaten. And, and uh, the canker worm hath left, the caterpillar hath eaten. These are, these are uh, believed to be four stages of the development of the breed of locusts that had devastated the land. Uh, they were either four different animals that God used, insects that God used one right after another, or more likely they were four stages of the development of this one brood of locusts that devastated the land. And Joel said, they have totally devastated our agrarian society. He described uh, them and uh, spoke of all of the, the ones who were mourning what had happened. Mourners that grieve the devastating effect of this judgment from God. You know, sometimes something bad can happen and you can talk about it for a day or two and then you go about your life and you get busy with things. It runs through the 24-7 news cycle. You read the stories, you saw the videos. A couple days go by, a week goes by, and you don't even think about it anymore. This was such a devastating event in the life of Israel that everybody mourned and grieved over the impact on their country. The, those who, uh, who uh, drank the product of the grape harvest, he called them, he spoke of them as ye drunkards, wake up and weep. Ye drinkers of wine because of the new wine for it is cut off. A new crop of grapes are gone. Now remember, they only grow once a year, they only harvest once a year. That means it'll be 12 months at least before there is another crop of grapes. It's gone for a year. Howl, weep, mourn. He said, he described the locust plague in verse 6 as a nation that has come up upon the land, strong and without number, whose teeth are like the teeth of a lion, whose cheek teeth like a great lion, which, which I have read is a good description of, of those locusts that were prevalent in that part of the world. They had teeth like saw blades. They would just grind up everything green. They would debark every tree. They would sometimes even uh, consume the branches of trees down to the hardwood. They were just devastating in what they did. Verse 7 says, you, They've laid my vine waste. They've barked my fig tree, made it clean bare. Uh, the branches are made white. So those who were agrarian, who depended on, and, and it was an agrarian society, everyone did. They're, they're mourning. In verse number 8, he, he told the nation to lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for her husband of her youth. It, it, it breaks up the, the, the uh, uh, marriage party. Uh, he speaks of the priests, the Lord's ministers, in verse number 9, is mourning, grieving. He even said in verse number 10, the land itself mourneth. This reminds us of Romans chapter 8, where the Bible says the very creation cries out in travail. 
begging for God to reverse the effect of the curse on the actual world itself. Not the people, but the the vegetation, the, the animal kingdom, the savagery of the animal kingdom that is the result of the curse of the fall. The, the whole world, the creation, groans in travail, begging God to reverse the effects of the fall of the Garden of Eden. Well, it's that kind of language here. Even the land itself is mourning because of what has happened. The corn is wasted, the new wine is dried up, the oil, the olive oil languisheth. He said uh, in verse number 11 that the farmers, be ye ashamed, O husbandmen, and howl ye vine dressers. He describes that, that this is devastating to the entire economy. Verse 12 ends by saying joy is withered away. Nobody's laughing. You know, there are those in our political world who got lambasted on the news over the last 48 hours because video was put out of them partying, laughing, dancing, great old great time while American citizens are being murdered in Afghanistan. How could you as a political leader laugh and dance and party when after what we've done to our own people in Afghanistan? They got really, really a lot of bad optics as a result of that. Joy is withered away in the entire land of Israel, the preacher said. Nobody's smiling. There are no Moments of levity, because our whole world is crushed by the judgment of God through this locust plague. It is all bad. He says to the priests, how ministers of the altar lie all night in sackcloth, ye ministers of the Lord, for the meat offering and the drink offering is withholden from the house of your God. He says in verse number 18, that even the beasts of the field are groaning, the herds of cattle, the, the livestock, all of the beasts of the field are, are in agony. Why? Because there's no food. There's the, 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 everything has, has been destroyed and everything is in agony and mourning over the judgment of God. This is something that's going to be talked about for generations. This is something that people will tell their great-grandkids. Do you remember back in... This is a story to be told. But there's an answer. There's hope. And the preacher's God, Joel, Joel, the preacher, holds out hope. Look at it in verse number 13. This is the first of two portions of Joel that highlight the hope that God always offers. Verse number 14. He said, sanctify ye fast. Give top priority. To what God is doing to your country. This is more important than your meal. The preacher was announcing the message of God to the priests and the spiritual leaders. He said, call a fast for the entire nation of Israel. Sanctify a fast. Then he said, assemble the people. Call a solemn assembly. Notice it's not just an assembly. It's a solemn assembly. These are broken people. These are devastated people. Call a solemn assembly. Who's going to be gathered in this assembly? Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land of the house of the Lord your God and cry unto the Lord. Give it top priority. Assemble everyone together and get on your face before God and cry out to God for mercy. You see, this is, this is the answer. To the judgment of God. It's always been the answer to the judgment of God. And Joel is amongst 
the preachers of the Bible, he stands in 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 an amazing position as delivering a message that is clear-cut on the judgment of God for sin in Israel and calling the people to give top priority to what God is doing, to gather together and to cry out to God for God to have mercy. And then he said, if you don't do that, if you don't do that, chapter 2, verse 1, Blow ye the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord cometh. You don't want to get serious? You don't want to call a fast? You don't want to assemble the people and plead with God and cry before God? All right. Blow the trumpet and announce there is a second judgment for God imminent that's coming. And that's what the preacher preached. In chapter 2, he begins to preach about the danger that's ahead for the nation of Israel. He said there's a day of the Lord that's coming. It is nigh at hand. We're about to go through the second stage, the second epic of God's horrendous judgment of a locust plague. Another locust plague, a second locust plague, because we didn't repent after the first locust plague. Danger ahead. From verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2, he announces this danger that is imminent upon them as a people that is coming. Now, those who study uh, the, the insects and all of that, they, they tell me that these verses, from verses nine, uh, 1 to 11, these verses are amazingly accurate in describing in picturesque form the mannerisms of an innumerable plague of locusts. How they move, what they do, they say this is, this is a, a remarkable explanation, talking about the, uh, the, the uh, banding together, the, uh, the, the blackness. The, they, they come to a wall and they go up over in the window and down, across the floor, up the other wall, out the window, down. They don't break rank. They just, they just move forward. And, and the description of this locust plague. Now, God calls this locust plague His army. Look at verse number 11. The Lord shall utter his voice before his army. Notice that. That's important. Something I learned from Bible preachers. This is God's army. Iraq was God's army to destroy the southern kingdom in the Old Testament. It was God's army. The locusts are God's army. God marshals forces to bring judgment against those who've rebelled against him. And he owns it. He's not ashamed of it. He doesn't back away from getting blamed for it. He said, I sent those locusts. You don't have any food to eat for the next year? You're starving? Your animals are dying in the fields? God says, I did that. I did that. That's my army. I sent them. To do what they did. This is my army. The Lord will utter His voice before His army. For His camp is very great. And He is strong that executeth His word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. And who can abide it? Danger is ahead. This is a remarkable picture of God in the way God deals with His creation. We need to learn from the Bible. 
We live in a day where where, where the Bible's all over the place, but it's seldom read and studied. Do, Do we know God's Word? Do we build our political philosophies based on our knowledge of how God works in politics and in in, in His created world? Do we build our sense of understanding of what's happening in our environment because we've studied the Word of God and we've learned how God operates? God doesn't change. He's still operating today the way He did in Joel's day. And we learn from God's Word, from Joel particularly right now, we learn that God marshals the forces of nature. He marshals the the winds and the rain. He marshals the storms. He marshals the the floods. He marshals uh, the insect kingdoms. He marshals all of His great armies and uses them to bring judgment according to His plan and His purposes. Important lesson to learn. To see the hand of God in our world today. I have to ask myself the question. Is President Biden a judgment of God on an America who continues to reject him? I would say yes. President Biden is a judgment of God on America. We've rebelled against God's morality in successive stages that began multiplying in the 1950s. And for 70 years, America has successively, generation after generation, mocked the morality of God, and it's gotten deeper, and it's gotten more perverse. It's gotten worse. It's it's invaded arenas of life that we're shocked by the behavior of humanity today. It, It began in the 50s, and it has... It has picked up speed as a snowball for 70 years. Is God pleased with that? The rejection of God's morality, the exalting of perverted people at the expense of moral people, lost court cases by Christians because it's more important to allow perversion than it is to allow a Christian to practice their faith in their business life and in their personal life. Exalting perverted people at the expense of moral people. God rejecting God-assigned gender at conception. Who would have dreamt that three years ago, four years, five years ago? Rejecting God-assigned gender at conception when God assigns the gender of every human being at conception? Rejecting that and declaring that we can surgically abuse a human being and reverse God's design for that human being? There's been a snowballing effect for 70 years in America. We've allowed it in our education system. We've allowed it in our entertainment world. We've allowed it in every aspect of life. And America is under the judging hand of God. Any Bible preacher living today, any preacher from the Bible era who would be a living today, they would announce unapologetically, COVID is the judgment of God on this world. There would be no apology for that. It would be announced with not a bit of shame. God is judging this world. God is judging our nation. And when God judges... We learn from the Word of God that under the judgment of God, 
innocent people suffer as well as guilty people. When God sent his army of locusts, even those God-fearing Israelites that were a remnant and still worshiping God, they suffered under the locust scourge just like the apostates suffered under the locust scourge. When God withheld the rain for three years, it didn't rain on the fields of Elijah just like it didn't rain on the fields of the apostates and the idol worshipers. When God judges His creation, that judgment impacts the lives of people who are godly as well as the lives of people that are ungodly. That's why in Afghanistan today there are Christian people being killed. Because when God judges, it not only affects the ungodly, it also affects everyone who's in the path of that judgment. We read about that throughout the entire Bible. It's reality, and it's something that people have to contend with. So God judges all that has happened to unravel the society and turn life upside down in America is God's judgment on America because of the gods that Americans have come to worship, the gods of immorality, of money, of education, of pleasure. And again, in the book of Joel, God stops the preacher and he says, but there's hope. And again, one of the most profound, it's it's similar to what he said in chapter 1, but it's more detailed in chapter 2. Look at what God's hope is in verse number 12. Therefore also now saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all of your heart, with fasting and with weeping, with mourning. And rend your heart, not your garments. Don't go through an outward display. Rend your hearts. Turn unto the Lord your God. Why? Because God is a gracious God. God is a merciful God. Slow to anger and of great kindness. And it repents Him of the evil. God is a God who... God God would much rather bless than blast. He would much rather pardon than punish. He would much rather win by love than wound by lashing. God is a God of gracious, merciful, slow to anger, kindness. It repents Him of the evil. He's pushed to the limit before He judges His creation. And so there's hope. If we will see the judging hand of God, if we will own up, to the fact that we deserve what God is unleashing. And if we have our hearts ripped open with agony of, of what God is doing and why God is doing it, God is merciful. God is gracious. God will forgive and heal. The hope is when we repent. Abraham Lincoln has been quoted as saying, we have forgotten God We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and enriched and strengthened us. We have have vainly imagined that all things were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. We're intoxicated with unbroken success. We have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and and uh, persevering grace. We're too proud to pray to the God who made us. That was Abraham Lincoln back in America's history at a particular time when he saw the judging hand of God on America. It was in 1679 in the Massachusetts colony just up the coastline. 
the general court of the Massachusetts colony recognized that God was judging Massachusetts. They saw events. They saw things happening. They, as a political body, were convinced that God's hand of judgment was on Massachusetts. What did they do? Well, they, they gathered together the churches in the area. And they asked the churches to come together. And here's what they, what they said. What they, they asked the churches to answer the following question. What are the evils that have provoked the Lord to bring judgments upon New England? The political body asked the churches to come together. What have we done? What are the evils that we are, have committed that has invited the judging hand of God? Well, the churches met. Church leaders met in a synod. They discussed the question and they responded. They listed 14 things that were being done in Massachusetts that was inviting the judgment of God. Let me read you the sixth one. Here's the sixth in the list of 14. There are many families that do not pray to God constantly morning and evening. And many more where the scriptures are not daily read, so that the word of God might dwell richly in them. There are too many houses that are full of ignorance and profaneness, and that are not duly examined. And for this cause, wrath may come upon others round about them, as well as upon themselves. Many households who profess religion do not cause all that are within their gates to become subject unto the good order as they ought. Most of the evils that abound among us proceed from defects in family government. Isn't that interesting? Those were the churches in Massachusetts Colony in 1679 when the politic, political body asked them to identify what has been done that has invited the judgment of God. One of the 14 things they wrote about was the state of family worship of the prayer lives of people that profess to believe in Christ, of the study of the Word of God. And they said, for these reasons, we invite the judgment of God. How many natural disasters, how many political disasters, how many medical disasters must God bring upon the world and America, all the while graciously offering us hope if we would only repent? And then... The sorrow is short-lived and life goes on. Has America repented of the murdering of our infants? Has America repented of the obsession with immorality via all kinds of gross, immoral things? Has America repented of, the, of, of, of what is being watched on the Internet by people who profess to be followers of Christ and are living double lives of immorality? Has, have, 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 have Americans repented of the sins that have invited the judgment of God? Have we repented of our addiction to entertainment and materialism? Have we... Has God made it miserable enough yet? You know, Israel was pretty miserable. I mean, it was gone. There was no food. There was no beverage. There was no... Their life was destroyed. It'll be a year at least before they can begin to recover from the devastation. They're going to go hungry for a year. They were devastated. How bad does it have to get in America before people 
really repent and seek God on their face. So what, 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 is the, what, do, what do we have to do? What, what, is the, what is the need? Verse number 13, God is gracious. Verse number 14, for who knoweth that he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind, even a meat offering and a drink offering? Who knows? But that God might reverse all this. But that God might forgive us. But that God might restore to us what we've lost. So what do we have to do? Verse number 15, he tells them, he tells them there's hope. And then in verse number 15, he says, now, here's what you need to get busy with doing. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Doesn't that kind of sound like what we just read about in chapter 1? Yeah, the answer is the same. We have to give priority to what God is doing and what's causing God to do what He's doing. That's got to become priority in our thinking and in our process. Blow the trumpet. Sanctify a fast. Call an assembly. Gather the people together. Get, get the people who still believe in God together. Make it a, a solemn assembly. Who's going to come to this solemn assembly? Well, verse number 16 says, Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, the children, and those that suck the breasts, even the bridegroom and the... The bride that just got married, tell them to come out of their closet and come to the solemn assembly. Everybody needs to come. Oh, but we don't have anything for the children on prayer meeting nights, so we just, there's nothing for the kids, so. Bring the suckling children. Bring the elementary age. Bring the teenagers. This is serious, the preacher Joel said. Call a solemn assembly. Get everyone together. Make sure the infants are there. Make sure the children are there. Make sure everybody's there. We're ruined. We're ruined. If we don't get a hold of the heart of God. This is our life. This is the future of our children and our grandchildren. This is everything the prophet Joel preached to the people of Israel. What are they going to do? They're going to get together. Verse number 17 says, Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep. Let Pastor Ryan get on his face and break out and weep. Let Pastor Elstock, Pastor Mike get on his knees and, and weep and weep and weep with broken hearts and tears flowing from their eye sockets. This is life and death. Let the spiritual leaders weep between the porch and the altar. Let them cry out to God, God, spare us! Spare us, God! Spare Thy people, O Lord! Give not Thine heritage to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. Could I put that in modern vernacular? ISIS is alive again. The Taliban is running again. They're warning us that we're going to have terrorist attacks on American soil again. The heathen are going to rule over us. And they're going to say in mockery, where is your God? Look what Allah did for us. Where is your God, America? Where is your God, Christian? Allah is victorious 
over your Jehovah. Let the preachers weep before God. Oh God, oh God, spare us. Let not the heathen say to us. And then look at verse 18. Then will the Lord. See, this is hope. This is hope. God never deals with judgment without offering hope because He's a gracious, merciful God. And if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then way up here in heaven, I'll hear their cry. And I'll forgive their sin and heal their land. So call the people together. Plead with God. And if you do that, God will be jealous for His land and pity His people. Here's what God's going to do. You remember, we, I just quoted it, Second Chronicles 7.14. God would act. And here we see the action of God. Verse number 18 and following. Verse 19. Yea, the Lord will answer. He'll, he'll say, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil. And you'll be satisfied. There'll be, I'll no more make you a reproach to the heathen. I'll remove far off from you the northern army. That's the locust plagues had swept in from the north. He said, I'll remove the northern army. He said in verse number 40, uh, verse number 21, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great things. Verse number 23, at the end of the verse, He will cause to come down for you the rain. It's going to rain. The drought's going to be over. He said in verse 25, I will restore to you the years that the locust have eaten, the cankerworm, the caterpillar, the palmer worm, my great army which I sent. I'm going to restore every thing they took away. I'm going to give you back everything you lost. Because I'm gracious and merciful. I sent my army to get your attention. I sent my army to get you on your knees. And I will restore everything that I took away from you in judgment. And notice... In verse 27, last verse tonight, verse 27, Ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God and none else, and my people shall never be ashamed. Wow. God said, this is what I'll do if you repent as a people. Joel, this great Bible preacher, Joel saw what was happening in the world around him, and he knew God's doing this. God is doing this. This isn't because we're burning too much oil. This isn't because we've made decisions about, about some political... Uh, inter- this, this is God's hand in motion, and we're devastated by the judgment of God. But if we'll get serious, if we'll get on our face before God, if we'll cry out to God, it just may be. That God will hear, answer, and restore. And we'll know that God is an awesome God. Hope. Bible preachers always ended with hope at the end of preaching on judgment. Judgment gets attention to bring repentance, to bring forgiveness and deliverance, which is our hope that will come when we have hearts broken for God.